Well, we tell ourselves and we might tell others that there are many benefits to being a Christian. I take it that you're here this afternoon because you know some of those benefits. There's benefits of being part of this community, of the relationships, of the intergenerational relationships. There's benefits of the peace that we have. There's benefits of purpose in life. It's the best of both worlds being Christian in its truest sense. Uh, Many of us have a nice house here and you know what? We'll have a heavenly mansion to come. But what if being Christian wasn't a gain here? What if being Christian meant the loss of many things that we love and like? The Soviet attitude towards Christianity was unceasingly hostile at the turn of last century. Karl Marx, the founder of communism, saw religion as the opiate of the masses. Who's heard of that quote? The opiate of the masses. By that, he meant that religion was used by the ruling class to oppress the lower class by dangling this carrot of heaven in front of them. And his, uh, the subsequent leader to, in, uh, in Russia was Joseph Stalin, and he flatly said in 1930 that God must be out of Russia in five years. And he went about executing on that promise. By the 1940s, the punishment for being a Christian in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union was just as severe as the punishment for murder. Those who were arrested could be held for one year before their trial as the state gathered evidence But the pre-sentence cells with the rats and infested water was nothing like the post-sentence prison arrangement. In 1940s Russia, they were known as gulags, which is a Russian acronym for forced labour camps. A young, ambitious army officer was imprisoned in one of those gulags in 1945. And within nights of being in one of these gulags, he saw this older Christian woman in this prison being interrogated night after night to reveal the location of another Christian. But he heard this old woman say to her tormentors this, and I quote, There is nothing you can do with me, even if you cut me into pieces. After all, you are afraid of your bosses, and you are afraid of each other. And you are even afraid of killing me. But I am not afraid of anything. I would be glad to be judged by God right this minute. As this man observed this incredible faith of this woman in the first couple of nights, he observed this again and again, not just in his first nights, but during the day and during the night, there seemed to be something remarkable about a particular type of person, a Christian person in these gulags. And this man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, in witnessing the faith of Christian people, gave up his atheism and embraced Christianity. And he embraced Christianity because the worse the treatment of these Christian people, the worse the treatment that they suffered, the brighter they shone. 
the more amazing their lives uh, were to him. Because the faith that these Christian people had in those gulags, in those terrible places of human oppression, that faith could not be touched by the very worst of evil or the very worst of human circumstance. Christians have always been persecuted. Christians were persecuted within the first decades in the first century. They were persecuted in the centuries afterwards. And persecution is not something restricted to ancient times. It wasn't something restricted to 1950s Russia. Persecution of Christians is something that's current today. It's very real for many Christian people. It's not real for us in the same way. It's real for those Coptic Christians. Nine Coptic Christians were killed on Christmas Eve in 2017. Over 100 Christians were killed in Egypt in 2017 for the whole year. There are forced labour camps, not anymore in Russia, but in North Korea, where hundreds of thousands of Christians are in similar conditions. What we face as Christian people is not persecution in the same sense that Christians face persecution in Soviet Russia as they do in North Korea, as they do in Egypt and as they did in the first century. What we face is more marginalisation and social hostility. But what we're doing here on Sunday afternoons is we're opening up this book of 1 Peter and pretty well going up to Christmas. And what we're going to see is that the book of 1 Peter has something to say about both. It has something to say about the extremes of persecution that is very real for Christians in North Korea or in Egypt. And it has also something to say to us, often Christians who may be marginalised in workplaces, families or social groups. There's an outline, hopefully, uh, in your... uh, set of papers as he came in. We're up to the second point there, 1 Peter so far. Because what have we seen in this letter? Well, we've seen three things. What has happened, what will happen, and what is happening. Firstly, what has happened. God has shown mercy, we saw last week. He's shown great mercy. And it's the need that we have, and it's provision that God has made. And what does God provide for us? We provide something that we saw last week, this extraordinary new reality that Christian people have been brought into, new birth. Why new birth? Because we were spiritually dead. And this new reality of new birth opens up to us our world now. How does Peter describe the Christian's reality right now? He says it's a living hope. This is what we have as Christian people. It's a living hope. Why? Well, because Jesus was raised from the dead. And the foundation of our faith is in the life of Jesus. And if Jesus was dead and was raised to everlasting life, well, then our faith is a living faith because of the resurrection from the dead. That's what we saw last week. We've been given this inheritance that can never spoil, perish or fade. And what Peter's doing is he's addressing, I think, two common assumptions that throughout the ages Christian people have had. And firstly, it's that, well, 
if we are now people who are not living for this world but are living for the one to come, as Peter says in the very first verse, he says that we're exiles, that we're strangers, uh, essentially we might think of ourselves as refugees, stateless people. This is how Peter thinks of the Christian person. Well, if, if, you're, if you're a person like that, then you lack position provision and power and so you might feel fragile weak and vulnerable but the great news last week we saw was that God is at work God is at work preserving and guarding us shielding us like a castle surrounding us with his power and his strength Second assumption that I think this section really addresses is what we might think as the ideal Christian, the ideal conditions for Christian faith to grow. My assumption is, and perhaps yours, that the ideal conditions for Christian faith to grow is when things are going well, when things are easy, when we can really focus on studying the Bible. But that's not what Peter says. Peter, we're going to see today, says that actually suffering is the ideal circumstance for faith to grow. My natural assumption is that suffering destroys faith. The hardship that a Christian faith faces, you would think, undermines their faith. After all, many of us think that being a Christian makes so much difference in our life, but that lives, but then to go through suffering, doesn't that undermine all the benefits of being Christian? This is what Peter addresses. And this is what he reminds these Christians of. And it's a reality that has already come for, before us. We saw that uh, in verse 5. My mum used to have this little trick. She used to say, uh, dinner's ready. Now, when she said that dinner was ready, dinner wasn't actually ready. What she meant was dinner was very close to be ready, but by the time her boys actually came in for dinner, she got, you know, had, had uh, factored in a lag time that by the time that she said and by the time that they arrived would be sufficient time for her to finish off getting dinner ready. Dinner's ready, but I would see in the microwave two minutes and 58 seconds to go. I knew that dinner wasn't ready because the veggies weren't cooked. Our salvation is not like this. It's not just about ready. Now have a look at verse 5. Our salvation isn't being worked on a little like renovation rescue two minutes before the owner comes in. There's all these jobs to be done. Now, verse 5, our salvation is ready. And it's ready to be revealed at the last time. It's there waiting. All that remains for our salvation is for that curtain to be dropped. But you know what isn't ready? We're not ready. Salvation is ready. The Lord Jesus is risen. He's reigning at the Father's right side. But we're not ready. We're not ready to go home because we have not yet faced the full measure of trial and suffering. 
This is Peter's point in verse 6. Why don't you have a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief of all kinds in all trials. So Peter is saying here that the reality of suffering and grief is real. This is something that's unavoidable for Christians. And here is the point that Peter wants to make. And it's not just the point in verse 6, it's indeed one of the points of this letter and perhaps the reason itself why Peter is writing this letter because Peter is saying here in the book of 1 Peter that the true Christian life, God's purpose for his church, God's purpose for your life is suffering. This is difficult because none of us like pain. Humanity is not drawn to grief and sadness. We do anything we can to run away from what is hard and what is painful and what hurts. But here the scriptures are putting before us the reality of suffering in our lives. And here is what Peter is going to do for the whole letter. In chapter 2, verse 19 and 21, Peter calls Christians to endure unjust suffering at the hand of their bosses. This is their calling now. Their job isn't to be an electrician or a carpenter. Their calling is suffering. Peter says in chapter 2, in chapter 3, verse 14 and 16, he gives the example of the Lord Jesus who did what? He suffered. In chapter 4, verse 12, there's an extended section on suffering and trial. And Peter says, if any Christian, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says that we as Christian people are to entrust ourselves to God in the middle of suffering. Suffering is unavoidable as a Christian. Indeed, I put to you that it's also unavoidable as a human, but in particular what Peter has in mind, it's unavoidable as a Christian. I think the kind of suffering that Peter has in mind is particularly that of persecution and social marginalisation. But he says there in verse 6, he says various. So I think we have the whole scope of human suffering in view here. I think primarily it's persecution, but I think that has relevance to all forms of suffering that we experience as Christian people. Firstly, Peter wants to contrast this suffering with that of eternity. Make sure that guy's okay. He's all right. He's not suffering too bad. (laughs) That's a momentary shock there. What Peter does, and indeed what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about our suffering as light and momentary because this is compared to the length and depth and reality of eternity. But there is a heavy reality before the recipients of Peter's letter and also for many of us. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the writer speaks about a day of testing. A day of testing where Israel is called 
in the Psalms not to harden their heart because Israel were in the wilderness. They were out without a home. They were sojourners. And here, this this very experience of Israel is being drawn on here. And here, as Israel failed this trial, they hardened their hearts at Meribah. And Peter, if you think about it, also failed a trial. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says to Peter directly and the other disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation or trial. Peter failed that trial. But here, for Peter, he is confident that these Christians are not going to fail the trial that God has placed before them. I had a very scary year seven maths teacher now. Any form of maths to me in year seven was scary enough. But to have a scary maths teacher who had a Serbian background, Mr Vuletic, even his name is intimidating, he, he was a brutal man, or at least he felt like that to me as a young year seven kid who was hopeless at maths. What he would do, apart from arranging the class in order of the last test... So the dumbest kids were up the front and the smart ones were up the back. I was always up the front. Public shaming. Uh, apart from public shaming, what he would also do is just pop, uh, just give um, surprise tests. Surprise tests with no uh, warning. And the likelihood of passing one of Mr Vulicic's tests was uncertain or was quite certain for me. And so the question that we ought to ask is, is this what God is like? Is the trial, is the test that God places, as we're seeing here in 1 Peter, is this something that should frighten us as I was in year seven? Well, no, this is not the sense of trial here. The sense of trial is not uncertain outcome. Now, in verse 5, Peter's made very clear that it's God who is protecting us. What is the sense of trial here? The sense of trial and testing is purification. And indeed, this is another theme of the book of 1 Peter. This is not a test that we are doing by ourselves, wondering if we will get through. This is a test that the Lord Jesus is walking with us The power of God is carrying us. I've got a friend who's uh, currently studying, uh, he's studying, he did a PhD in pure mathematics and is doing a postdoctoral fellow at MIT uh, in the States. Now, I'd love to do Mr. Mr. Vuletic's year seven maths test with my friend James sitting right next to me. That's the sense of this test. This is a test for which we are not alone. The power of God is protecting us, verse 5. But this is a test. This is a trial for the purification of our faith. And indeed, the idea of purification is huge in the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 15, we see that holiness is the imperative for the Christian. We see that in verse 19 of chapter 1, that Christ himself is pure. We see that obedience brings about a purity in 1 
in chapter 1, verse 22. We see a milk that is pure in chapter 2, verse 2. We see a purity in chapter 3, verse 2, with reverence. And we see a purity of conscience in chapter 3, verse 16. See, what God is doing in us through trials is purifying our faith. This is the nature of the trial, that our faith may prove what? Verse 7. Genuine. May prove genuine. It's, this is not a pass or fail. This is a trial of purification. This is one of refinement there in verse um, 6 and 7. Sorry, verse 7. And indeed, trials strengthen faith. This is my second point in relation to trials. Because the very nature of a trial is that, well, you're emptied of yourself. You're emptied of all you can do. And many of us, I think, can testify to the very darkest moments of life, the very most difficult things that we've had to go through. They are the times for which we've let go of the normal comforts that would surround us. And all we've been able to do is cling to God. And that is the purification, I think, that Peter is talking about. It's a purification which has the concept and the analogy, the picture of gold being refined through fire. It's there in verse 7. Your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Here is the image of a smelting furnace. The gold with its impurities is placed in the heat of that furnace and out comes into that furnace, out of that furnace two things. One, pure shining gold and the other, the impurities and the dross that is discarded by the wayside. Because the sorrow that we feel the sadness that we know, the distress that is very present and real for so many of us, some of us right now, for some of us in the future, for some of us in the past. These moments, these moments of deep anguish and pain, they point us to an unfading joy, a solid and eternal joy that is found in the Lord Jesus and this is what is preparing us for heaven. And that's the view that Peter has here. Because have a look at the second section of verse 7. There's an extraordinary little phrase there. He says that our, our faith is going to be refined like fire, such that it would prove genuine, and that would be enough. But have a look at this bit. It says that it may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, who's to receive the praise and the glory and the honour? Well, if, you were, if I was to ask anyone here tonight, I'm pretty sure if I was to describe to you the picture of the eternal reality, there in heaven with Jesus, who would be receiving praise, glory and honour? Who? Jesus. That's right. And he will be. But that's not what Peter's speaking of here. He's speaking of the praise, the glory and the honour, not for Jesus, but from Jesus. 
the praise and the glory and the honour that is given to the faith that is refined, the faith that is made ready for heaven. There's various reasons why I've come to conclude this. I mean, this is not um, uh, so far outside the scope of the New Testament. In fact, we see uh, many sections, one just in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made, si- made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We receive the benefits of Christ. But here is such our refinement, such our readiness to be brought home to heaven that the praise, honour and glory is not simply directed to Jesus, but is also directed to us. Why? Because Jesus has been sustaining us. He's the one who's been carrying us. He's the one who's been purifying us. And so that which we receive is that which is given by the Lord Jesus. It's It's an incredible picture. It's an incredible picture that Peter is pointing us to, that final glory that we share in. It's Christ's glory. But when we are united to Christ, we share in his glory as well. How does this come about? Or what is the effect of it, sorry? In verses 8 and 9. Well, the effect of this refinement is that our love might be seen properly that's what peter is talking about there in verse 8 he says though you have not seen him you love him see how is it that you can love someone that you haven't seen do you love jesus not does jesus love you but do you love jesus this is the reality that the fiery furnace of suffering places before us throughout history christians have declared their love for christ not just their love of christ but their love for christ it's at the heart of the old testament commandment to love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and our love is properly ordered is properly directed most clearly when everything that would distract us from who we are and who Jesus is, is taken away. And this, in Peter's mind, is what occurs in suffering, is through hardship, is through pain. It's this purification. And as that occurs, as everything that we would try and hang on to, that we would try and hold on to, as everything other than the Lord Jesus is taken away. There we have a pure vision of who we are and who the Lord Jesus is. And Peter says we are filled. We are filled with an inexpressible joy. We are filled with a joy that can't be described. We are filled with a heavenly joy. See, what Peter is doing, he's saying that the reality of heaven is not simply stored up for us, and it is. It's secure. But as we know of its security and as everything that would prevent us from seeing that reality and being close to the Lord Jesus, as everything that is taken away in the furnace of suffering there, the reality of heaven and the reality of our final eternity, our final existence in eternity is brought into the present 
Now we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We are filled with a joy beyond words. We, we, we are filled with a joy beyond time. We are filled with a glory that one day we will, ex- we will experience in eternity, but here now we experience in part. Because this is the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, the purification of our faith, our deliverance, our rescue in the Lord Jesus. See, we have a living hope as Christian people. A living hope is not one of mansions or merely mansions in glory. Our living hope is the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus. He's our shepherds, shepherd. He's our brother. He's our prince. He's our king. And our treasure, our hope, that which we long for, is to be with him because he is our approval. He is our wealth. He is our honour. He is the one who has gone from, who has been raised to life. 1 Peter is an encouragement for us as Christians to see our future, to know the security of our future, and to know that the reality of suffering cannot take that future away. Quite the opposite. The reality of suffering draws that future closer to us and we are filled with inexpressible joy. We are filled with inexpressible joy now in the middle of pain and one day we will be filled with inexpressible joy forever in heaven with him. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our next song together.